Hello, everyone. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this lesson. We love it. It is glorious. It is our future. And we praise you for making it possible. So, Father, I just pray that as we go into these words that we know are trustworthy and true, that you will just make them clear to us, help us to get excited, and we will truly give you all the glory and praise. Amen. Well, before we get into chapter 21, if you have your Bibles open, you will see that it starts with the word then, then. And this, to me, is one of the most exciting, most uplifting, most future, future kind of, of chapters that, that, that get us excited and know that all that what we go through is going to be so worth it. But that word then said something to me. It said that before you can go into chapter 21, and as much as we would like to just do that chapter, you have to go through chapters 1 to 20. I think as a verse-by-verse verse teacher, I discover that, that it is so, so essential that we don't take out of context or that we, we miss what, what needs to happen before we can appreciate 21. And so again, just quickly, I just want to make sure that you see how Revelation is laid out, that you see that, that it starts with chapter 1, and that we know for sure from chapter 1 that it's John who is writing this, that he sees with his own eyes, he hears with his own ears. So again, these words are true. And then, and then in chapters 2 and 3, we see that Jesus, well, he said in 1, John write to each one of these these churches, I want to make sure that they get themselves all prepared and they take a good look at their heart and their lives. And are they are they really ready? Are they are, is that is their life ready before judgment starts? Are they are they in a right relationship with me? Is there something that's standing in the way? Is there something that maybe they they just need to identify as that they don't that they know they're not living right and that they recognize that 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 Jesus does see it. He sees everything. And the only way anybody is gonna get through the judgment is by having a right relationship with Jesus. So that's why I stress those two chapters so much, and and I and I and I go over them and over them and over them because it's so critically important that you identify yourself in those two chapters somewhere somehow, so that you are so ready to then go into chapters four and five, 
I mean, in chapter four, where you just, it's so beautiful the way you start to see and hear the sights and the sounds of heaven, that it's a real place. And that there is, that there are 24 elders sitting on thrones, and there are four living creatures who, who praise and worship Jesus day and night. I, I was so taken by that, and I keep going over that too because I think it's so important that we see that the closer we are to Jesus and these four living creatures, they, they live closest to the throne. And I think the closer you are with Jesus, the more you get to know him, the more you identify with him and the more you start looking like him, the more you start acting like him and you start realizing that when you worship him day and night, it's because it's, because it's not just a feeling that you do at certain days of the week or times of the day, but that worship and praise is done day and night so it's not just an action that you do, and it's not just a warm feeling that you get when you raise your hands. And he is worthy of all that, but worship and praise is day and night. It's an attitude that overcomes you. It's the, the thought that, that he is on your mind in every area of your life, in every minute of every day, in every decision that you have to make. So the, these analogies are so personal as well. Instead of just looking at the four creatures and saying, oh, they've got all these eyes and wings and... But take a look at how this is something you want. And then you see in chapter 5 where it really starts getting, it really starts getting you toward the judgment. Because John says that an angel asked, is there anybody worthy that can start opening up the seals, that can take this scroll and open up the seals and begin judgment? And how when no one came, he wept and he wept. And I just don't want you to forget that his reaction was because if there was no one worthy to take this world through judgment and to purge it from all its rebellion, then we would be stuck in this and there would, there would be no hope that the cross didn't work. It's... It, it's it's really something. So when Jesus stood up and he, with all authority and confidence, went and took the scroll from his father's hand, that, that you see that this was a monumental time. And so as he took the scroll, then, then you can see that they had the heavens just crescendoed into praise after more praise and worship after more worship because they knew that he was going to make wrong right. That unfairness was going to be made fair. So then we saw last week and, and you really hung in with me. I mean, goodness sakes, the, 
the, the letters to the churches lasted an hour and 15 minutes and the, and the whole whole judgment last week lasted an hour and a half and so many of you just hung in there. But again, it's part of the then. Before you can start this lesson today, you have to have walked through all of those chapters. And I look at what we did last week and even though there's so many different ways you can look at it and there's so many different denominations that look at it in a different way and I'm not trying to, to steer you in one direction except that I want you to see that the reason chapters 6 to 20 are in there is because we have to know that before we can have 21 we have got to get this earth purged of all evil and Satan has got to be thrown into eternal hell. And so, again, how does judgment work? He could have snapped his fingers and had it all done in just a second in the twinkling of an eye. It could have all been done. But because of his grace and his mercy, he did judgment in a progressive way. He did it in a precise way. There was, there were, there were, there were things that he did to get our attention, to wake us up, to have the people that thought that they could handle life on their own to try to get them to see. So he opened up the seven seals one at a time. And yet there's a verse in there, did you, and don't forget that the people that were going through these seals being opened, they still rebelled. They still wanted nothing to do with Jesus. So then he progressively moves into the, the sounding of the seven trumpets. One third, one third, one third. How precise, how detailed he is in his judgment. He knows exactly what he's doing. And then he pours out the seven bowls of wrath. And you know, you can't help but wonder how much he loves mankind by giving him chances and then to be able to rise up 144,000 missionaries to try to go out there and get the message. These 144,000 were sealed. And a reminder how we, his children, are sealed. And then to be able to see that he raises up two witnesses, these these old prophets that have that stood for for the gospel and for what was right and and then before the the seven bowls of wrath how he how he had three angels proclaim warning after warning after warning but when they finished their warning and he started pouring out the seven bowls of wrath. You can't help but see that 
there was no more chances. And then at the end of the seven bowls of wrath, when his wrath was poured out, the angel shouted, it is done. And then we see in the second coming of Christ, the, the earth is now ready. The rebellious nations have gathered together. And at the second coming of Christ, with the multitudes following, by opening up his mouth, their evil is banished. In that chapter, we see the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're the first ones that are, are into hell. Hell is now opened and then in chapter 20, how we're reminded again how there's going to be a resurrection of everybody. We know that the dead in Christ will rise first. We're told that the martyrs who came to know Jesus during the, during the judgment, they will be raised right before the thousand-year reign. And then after the thousand-year reign, and, and Satan is thrown into hell, and I, I can't even fathom what that's going to be like when we see all evil in hell. And then we, we know that the unbelievers, they too will rise. They will rise and they will stand before the great right white throne and if their name is not in the book of life if there was never a time that they received Christ Jesus as their personal savior they will stand in front of Jesus as their judge we the believer will see Jesus as our savior and what a day that will be but what a horrible day it will be for the unbeliever when they will face Jesus and their name is not in the book of life. And they will too be thrown into hell. And that is the second death, which is total separation from God. And that's Revelation 1 to 20. Then, then, then John says, I saw when all that was done. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Why, why that? Why is there no longer any sea? Sometimes I, I like going to the beach. I like going to see the Lake Michigan. I like going to see the ocean. And I'm thinking, there's not going to be any sea? And I don't know whether there's going to be water. I mean, we know that there's going to be something as clear as glass, all reflection of Jesus. But what do seas do? And they, they have a tendency to separate us. 
And I think here, could it possibly mean that there is just going to be no separation between the new heaven and the new earth? And we're just going to be able to experience all of this. Because the first earth and the first heaven is passing away because the old order of things is over. And now it's going to be new, all new, totally perfect. And John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What a, what a, what a beautiful analogy. I mean, there's something so pretty about a bride who has spent so much time getting herself ready for that one person that one man that is waiting to take her as his own. And so you can see that this was, that's what came into John's mind. It came in that he thought, how can I explain this? I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and it was so beautiful. It was like she had spent all day getting ready to meet the one. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. A loud voice from the throne. That means the voice of God himself said, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Can you, can you possibly think of a time when you know you were in that right relationship with him? That you maybe have come off from a conference or a sermon or maybe even a Bible study or whatever, and you know that you're in a right relationship with him. He feels so close that you can just open up your voice and he'll be right there to hear you. Or you just know that he is just seeing you and he's pleased with you and there's just this right fellowship. There's that beautiful close walk. Can you imagine that that is the kind of closeness and that's the kind of a right, perfect relationship that we are going to be having with him forever? And he's announcing it from the throne that now, finally, he can get back into the kind of relationship that he intended to have with us from the very beginning. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. Remember in the first chapter we talked about that before we got to Revelation 21, in the first chapter it said 
that there will, there will be mourning. Every, everyone, everyone will mourn. And I believe that that's true because I think our first look of him, we will say, and why didn't I do? Or why did I do? But here, but here, after everything has been, been cleansed, look, there's going to be no more tears. No more death. No more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Every suffering, every disappointment, every 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 thing that we've wondered why, Lord, this doesn't make sense, why this should be. All of that's going to be gone. All of the old order has passed away. And he who was sit, seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Everything is brand new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to John, I know that when they hear about the no more suffering and no more mourning or death or no more tears, when they, when they think that they can be in a right walking relationship with me forever and ever, John, people are going to be reading this and they're going to say, this is just too good to be true. And we're taught in this life that if something is too good to be true, it is. And we're warned about that. But here Jesus is saying, John, make sure right now you tell them that what they're hearing, what you are writing, my words, they're coming from God himself from the very throne. You tell them that it is true. And these words are trustworthy and they can count on them and they can hold on to them. They can be the very words that give them the hope in their, in their darkest times. The Holy Spirit now can help them remember these words that a better day is coming. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He says this again. He says this about three times in this book. He wants us to know that he always was, he is, and he always will be. And to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. I think about that living water. John in his gospel talked about the living water. 
how Jesus said, if you drink of me, you will never thirst again to the Samaritan woman. There's something about Jesus being that thirst quencher. When you think that that there's something that you need and you and you are longing for it and and he's that. He is the one who can quench your thirst. He's the one that is your living water and he is again reassuring us that we will be living with him and we will not have we will be in need of not one thing. That's, an, that's another thought that's almost unfathomable. We will not need one thing. He who overcomes will inherit all this. He who overcomes. He said that a lot in, in the letters to the churches. And, and what do you have to overcome You have to overcome yourself. You have to overcome your own sin. You have to overcome your own pride, thinking that you and of yourself are worthy. You have to overcome that pride that's keeping you from taking that walk to Calvary. That a humble walk knowing that you aren't worthy and you are not adequate and that you need a Savior and you now believe you have one. He said, if you overcome all the the things of this world that want to trap you, if you overcome all those self things, if you overcome the temptation of the devil because you've been given a greater power so that no temptation is too great if you go to the Lord for your way of escape. He's saying, if you overcome, you will inherit all this. Those are his terms. You overcome yourself and you come needing a savior. You come to the cross. That's, he said, look what you get. And I will be his God and he will be my son or daughter. But the cowardly. And in this chapter, he makes sure John writes this again. He makes sure that John makes sure he makes sure that John says and writes this so that everybody can hear this again. Because I'm telling you, right to the very end, Jesus wants us to know there's only two choices. And if you do not overcome your own self, then he says, then this is what will happen. The cowardly. That's what he calls the unbeliever. The coward. You're a coward. The unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters. And you know what idolatry is. It's anything in your life that took the place of him. That instead of saying that you can't live without him, you said, I can't live without it. 
or even an earthly person. If we are worshiping or if we are clinging to anything other than Jesus or an idolater and all liars, he calls you are liars. If you think and you say that you're adequate, you're a liar. If you think because you've achieved a certain goal and if you, you've achieved a certain position and, and everybody recognizes you and you've got power and, and you've got all the things that the world has lied to you saying that you need to be somebody. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, boy, that was a detailed description of this angel. And what a contrast. What a contrast from from the chapters before where it said that this angel these seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues that were going to be poured out. These same angels now said, Come. What an imitation. Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit. And I circle that again in my Bible, in the spirit. Because again, if John wasn't in the spirit, there's no way in chapter one he would have seen what he saw. If he wasn't in the spirit, the Holy Spirit, then he wouldn't have heard what he heard. And again, we see this again. John says, I was in the Spirit. You know what that means, doesn't it? You know what that means? It means when you are in the Spirit, the Spirit is helping you see and understand and live when you think you can't. The Spirit enables you to do what you can do for yourself. When you're in the spirit, you're getting through without worry and fear and complaining and panic and whining and self-pity. When you're in the spirit, the spirit helps you to see that God is always up to something and that he loves you and me and he's got a reason for everything he's doing. So again, when you see that phrase, in the spirit, have that be a goal that you want. You want to live your life in the spirit so that that spirit is the one that enables you to see and be and hear what you could never do for yourself. And you don't want to miss what he's got for you and me. Because he was in the spirit, he was able to see a mountain great and high. And these angels showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. 
No, we're going to see. Oh, my goodness. Are, are we going to see? And John is going to have a hard time trying to explain this because it's so beyond our human comprehension. But he does a very good job. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. He's saying that, that in, and like he saw before in, in chapter 4, the light of Jesus, the light of God is just so brilliant, and it's reflecting like a diamond reflex. And its brilliance was like that of a, of a, a very precious jewel. Like dime, like a diamond. Jasper is, is like a diamond. And then he said, it had a great wall. A high wall. And sometimes you, you think, well, why did it need a wall? Why, when we, when we don't have any enemies anymore and all evil has been banished, to eternal hell, then why do we need a wall? And could it be that it's it's to help us to see that it's a real place and it helps us picture these walls are to keep out, but it's but it's just to show that this is gone, this is our home. Right about now, I can almost hear Jesus saying to John, welcome, welcome to your new home. So this is our new home. And it, it does have walls and a high wall with 12 gates and, the 12, and with 12 angels at the gates. And the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. We know how important these 12 tribes of Israel were. And so their names are going to be, each one of the tribes will have their name on one of those gates and on the gates. And there were three gates on the east, on the, on the west, on the south, and on the north. Three gates. Now, why do you think? Why do you think in every direction? Isn't it so beautiful to think that it could be the thought that that there's people coming from every direction, and for all who have received him, he promised there there would be room, and we would have our new home. And they're coming from all the four directions. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations on them. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. How important were the 12 apostles that took this gospel, this life-changing gospel, to the world? Don't you wonder if John was looking around and he looked at one of those foundations and he found his name. 
And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. It it was like a cube, so that wherever you looked, it was equal measurement. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, which is 14 to 1,500 miles in our terms. And if we're, if we're really measuring with this exact measurement, it's, it's like from Maine to Florida. And it was... 14,000 miles wide, high, and long. He measured its walls, and the walls were 144 cubits thick. And again, in our measurements, that's 200 feet thick. And it said he was using man's measurement. The wall was made of jasper. The wall was made of jasper, like a diamond, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And it lifts 12 stones. But in verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. Now, I repeat, those walls were 200 feet thick. And there were 12 gates, and each gate was made out of one pearl. That's a big pearl. And the way we know pearls nowadays, we know that it takes an aggravation, it takes a suffering, it takes that, that like that little grain of sand that that poor oyster, it's, it's, it just has to keep making more and more pearl until there is no more irritation. There's no more suffering. Could it mean that those gates that we're able to go in and out of so freely, could it be that we are reminded of the pain and the aggravation and most of all the suffering that it took for us to even be there? I don't think we're ever supposed to not remember. Even though we we know there'll be no more mourning, no more sorrow, but as Jesus will have the nail prints in his hands and his feet, we will always know our place and that we are not worthy to be there except for the blood of our Savior. The the great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. 
I remember when I used to sing on Children's Bible Hour and there was one rally. We had rallies in the Civic Auditorium. and That was such a big place for a child. I remember I was, I think I was 10 or 11. And I, I was given a solo that year by... Um, by our director, Aunt Bertha. And in this rally, we always had a theme. And this particular year, it was the theme of heaven. And the solo she gave me to sing was Pearly White City. Beautiful, beautiful, old, old song. And in, in the staging, there was a huge city that someone had drawn and it went from floor to ceiling in this huge place and she wanted me to start from one end of the stage and sing the song and walk toward the pearly white city. Now as a 10, 11 year old, I mean, it was, it was quite a, that was quite something. You've got 5,000 people because we did it twice on a Sunday afternoon at 2 and 4 and both of them were just jam-packed. 5,000 people are sitting out there and I hear the music playing and I'm supposed to sing and remember my words and walk across the stage and point to the city. Only the Lord could help this little kid do all that. But I remember a line in that song. I remember it said, I have a mansion, a harp, and a crown. And as a little kid, I have to say, I didn't really know what I was, what I was singing. I mean, I sang the words, but... All that came back to me when I was reading this description. And that old hymn writer wrote these words, and now I, I can hardly believe it, that yes, I'll have a mansion, a harp. And remember, we've already learned that a harp isn't a harp as we know it, and every one of us is going to know how to play the harp. A harp is symbolic for joy. Remember how I said in Psalm 137, the Israelites, they hung up their harps because they had no joy. They had fallen away from, from God. They had been rebellious. And they had, they had, they hung up their harps. They had no joy. And in Revelation, we hear how the harp, and then, then they sang a new song. When you, when you're filled with joy, don't you just feel like singing? When, when you have the joy of Jesus, it just has to come out of you. And music is such a wonderful, wonderful way of expression. And that's why in, in, chapter, in chapter 5, when Jesus took the scroll, and that meant that the cross did work, and this world would be freed of all evil. That heaven erupted in worship and praise, and they sang a new song. 
Oh, we are going to, yes, we have a mansion. We'll have a, a harp. We'll have our joy. We'll have a new song. And we'll have a crown. A crown that we know we will lay at his feet. But I couldn't help but think of that. The words of that, that song, that song that a 10, 11 year old probably had really no comprehension of the enormity of it. But I'm certainly glad that as I study Revelation and the more we study it, he says, you'll be blessed. You'll be given an extra measure of blessing. And this week when I recall those, those songs, I had to laugh too because in that same in that same rally I sang with two others. We made a trio and we had to sing this song about heaven. And every time we sang a different verse, the spotlight would go off and us three little kids would have to, in the dark, work our way up, farther up to another plateau so that the light would come on. So it resembled like every time we sang a different verse, we were, we were higher up toward heaven. It made quite a point, but I couldn't help but laugh because the three of us were stumbling all over in the dark, and yet when the spotlight came on, we were in our place. And I don't mean to make light of this, but it just, as we look back and as the Lord has taken us from, maybe from a lot of us, from childhood, and we're just starting a little bit to comprehend what those words mean and the promise of having a new home. And then to have a home that looks like this. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Usually in the Old Testament and even in the New, there was always a representation of God. It was like the temple was his home. It's where he dwelt. And to think that we don't need that. We don't need a representation anymore or a place for, for God to dwell because he is the temple. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. I don't think that needs much explanation to you. The way John describes it, with so much, so much light radiating from that throne, Light is bouncing and reflecting off everything. From the beauty of the walls to, to the, the appearance of a lake before the throne. There, there is no need for any lamp or light switch or even the sun or the moon. It just keeps getting better. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. 
there's still going to be nations. I think it's it's just going to be so wonderful because it's going to be so perfect that even though there might be individual nations, everybody is going to be getting along because everybody has one focus. Self is gone. Self and all of the attributes, the yuck of self is going to be gone because all of our focus is on Jesus. And so I think that's why the nations and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there is no night there. And for some of you who just dread the nighttime, it's the longest, it's the loneliness, loneliest It is the most fearful to think that's why, again, perfection, there's not going to be night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. But again, in the greatness and in the magnificence of this chapter, Jesus makes sure John again reiterates Nothing, nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If there is a day in the course of your lifespan that you accept to Christ as your Savior, your name remains in the book of life. Your name is not blotted out. Anybody who's rejected Jesus, their name will be blotted out. And he just wants us to make sure, again, we know, that book of life is critical. And his terms are, your name is in the book when you've acknowledged Jesus as your Savior. Remember, Laodicea, oh, they, they knew all about him. They, they had so many good things going. But their Jesus is outside the door. You can know all about him, but it has nothing to do with knowing him when you personally know him. I have a phrase that I've, that my, our ministry has been kind of based on and the phrase is, and I'm sure I've said it many times, Jesus can be explained. He just can't be explained. He has to be experienced. And may that thought go through your mind because you can think, you can explain him, you can know all the details of his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. You can know all about him. But if you don't know him personally, and he knows, you can see, and he will, he will cut you off from the vine 
and he will take those branches that bear no fruit for him and he will he will throw them into the fire or he will blot your name out from the book and so when you stand in front of him and he goes through the pages he will say I never knew you and that's what he wants to make sure that we are not ostriches and put our heads in the sand and we only want to hear what we want to hear I don't want to hear about the letters to the churches I don't want to hear about the judgment but that's why I end this chapter by making sure that it started with the word then. You're only going to be able to experience the beauty of this chapter and experience the pearly white city, the harp and the crown. Unless you can personally say that you've been to the cross. Father in heaven, we thank you for this chapter. And I just praise you for loving us. I thank you for loving us. I worship you for loving us so much that you made a way when there really wasn't. Unless you make, made a way, there would have been no way for us. But because of Jesus, if we overcome ourselves. And we humbly come to the cross. We can inherit all this. And Father, what a day that will be. Father, may this chapter, may this whole book of Revelation be something that we are, are excited about. That even the whole of it, the letters, the judgment, all of it is to remind us that it's real, it's going to happen. And while there is time, we have work to do. Because in all honesty, I can't even imagine you blotting a name of one of my loved ones out of the book because I did not tell them. Father, this is to shake us is to shake the very core of our being. Because it is real. He said it, these words are trustworthy and true. Father, again, I thank you for loving us so much to give us these warnings, to give us these promises, to give us all that we need to hang on. And thank you for giving us a glimpse of our new home. And it's all because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.